Yeah. It's great to be with you today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Doug Martin, and it is a delight to, uh, to be with you and to be able to share God's Word with my church, my home body. Um, if you have paid any attention to the news recently, when you turn on your TV, uh, when you check the internet, uh, there's a lot going on in the world today. Uh, the headlines are, are really dominated by the World Cup, by Vanderbilt Baseball, for those of you who are baseball fans, by Iraq, by Benghazi, maybe by the Washington Redskins and the politically correct naming of their team. But for those of you who are more in the techie world, you're noticing Google's effort to take over the world, right? What began as a search engine uh, has now grown to include Google TV and Google Glasses and Google Phones. But have you, have you heard about the Google Car? Have you guys heard about this? Google has, has developed a prototype for a self-driving car. One that has no steering wheel, no brake pedal, no accelerator. You sit in it and go. Now that's a weird concept for us, isn't it? And, and I don't know about you, but as I think about the Google car, a lot of questions come to my mind. Questions like, how do you start it? Questions like, when you're running out of fuel, does the car automatically know to go get fuel? And where does it go? Questions like, if I'm in an accident in my Google car that's self-driving, who is at fault? Can I be pulled over for speeding? Or does my insurance liability roll over to Google? Questions like, if I get in my car and, and you hack my application which drives my car to its destination, and I'm trying to go to Spring Hill and I end up in Springfield, what do I do? It's a lot of questions, right? Things that we have a general concept of, but, but our paradigm is shifting, and so we really don't know... We really don't know how this thing is going to work. Well, in the book of First Corinthians, uh, we are at a point of transition from chapter 6 to chapter 7. For the first uh, six chapters, Paul has really been giving the Corinthians instruction about the church. He's been talking to them about the importance of unity. He's been talking to them about leadership. But in chapter 7, Paul makes a transition and he begins to answer some questions they have about the subject of marriage. Because the Corinthians, they didn't quite understand what marriage was supposed to look like. They didn't quite understand how it operated. There was a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of questions. And so in chapter 7, they were hungry for answers. And so Paul spends this chapter answering about seven questions that the Corinthians had about marriage. And so that's how we're going to approach this piece of scripture this morning. The reality is we could spend the next seven weeks on chapter 7. And so the challenge is going to be, how do we bring this all into focus? So we're going to give kind of a flyby of seven questions that the Corinthians were asking. We're going to focus on the first three or four. We'll quickly move through the last couple of questions. 
But as, as we consider the Corinthians perspective, it's very important for us to understand kind of their background and what they were thinking. What was the state of the union in Corinth? And it's important to note that the Corinthians had a pagan perspective on marriage. They didn't have a Jewish or a biblical Old Testament picture of what marriage is about. They had a pagan image of marriage. Corinth was in Greece. Greece was a a polyistic or, or polytheistic community. There were many gods that they worshipped. And you can imagine worshipping many gods, how confusing that would get to your theology. For common people, which most of the Christians uh, at that time were just the common people, they weren't the wealthy ones. For common people in Corinth, and in fact throughout the Roman Empire, Rome had no uniform marriage law. So there were no traditional marriage laws. Uh, In fact, marriage didn't even exist for slaves. And many of the early Christians uh, in that area had been slaves. And so marriage really didn't even exist. What slave owners would do is they they would have their slaves live in tents and kind of cohabitate. And so you can imagine how confusing confusing that became to what marriage was supposed to be. Uh, After one year of cohabitating, uh, the slaves were considered husband and wife. Today, our common law marriage, you know, we would say that would be after seven years, according to our legal system. The other way people experienced marriage is they were sold into marriage for a dowry. And so they grew up in this pagan environment. They really didn't have a good picture. In addition, in Corinth, sexual immorality was rampant when Paul wrote to them. Now, we've heard talk about, or we've heard Jeff talk about the fact that uh, in Corinth was the temple to Aphrodite, right? It was a temple where people came and worshipped sexuality. There were a thousand uh, prostitutes of the temple. Concubines were very common. Uh, Prostitution was not just a way of life. It was an economic driver of that community. Uh, Sleeping together, fornication, that was just a part of everyday life in their community. So in a nutshell, marriage in Paul's day was a disaster. So much confusion. And so you can understand why all these questions will come about. Well, it's interesting because I think there's a great deal of similarity between, between Corinth and Nashville. You might not have thought about this before, but, you know, here in our community and in many communities in the United States, we have a very secular or pagan view of what marriage is supposed to be, don't we? The culture is driving marriage, not the Bible. Nashville and, and this community, it's thriving, it's growing, it's, it's prospering economically. It's wealthy, but at the same time, Sexual immorality is rampant here, just as it was in Corinth. We don't have the temple of Aphrodite, but we've got the internet. And there are a lot of people worshiping at the throne of the internet and the sexuality and immorality that it presents to us daily. We have cable TV, television in general. Just like in Corinth, our marriages really are a disaster. And the more I speak with men and women about the subject of marriage, the more convinced I become that, that we're confused, that there's misunderstanding, that we don't have a plan, and we really don't understand how marriage is supposed to work. We're not that different from Corinth. So turn to your Bibles. 
Turn to your Bibles to 1 Nashvillians chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. Acts, Romans, Nashvillians. Your Bible might say Corinthians. And this is where Paul addresses seven specific questions that the Corinthians posed to him. And, you know, he had a lot to say. And and I have to tell you that I've got to believe that the Corinthians did not love Paul's response. It probably caused some angst. And I stand before you today recognizing that as we study it, it's going to cause some angst in us as well. In the Road Less Traveled series, we've spent the last three weeks talking about the fact that when we take the road that's less traveled, the better road, that it's all about Jesus. We've talked about the fact that as we pursue this road, our identity is in Christ. It's not in the world. And then last week, Jeff talked about the fact that uh, leadership, spiritual leadership, is essential to travel this road. And he defines spiritual leadership as moving people towards God's agenda. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He's going to take people, he's going to lead them spiritually, and point them to God's agenda. So let's pray as we as we dig in father. Thanks for this morning. Thanks for the truth of your word I thank you that that you care about marriage. I thank you that you give instruction I thank you that we can trust your instruction I thank you that that what you teach us about marriage is disruptive That it causes us to think And ultimately lord, I pray that as we study this today It would cause us to come back to you to understand you better that you might be glorified in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our lives. May your words speak to our hearts this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first question that the Corinthian church is asking Paul is a simple but complex question. They're asking, is a sexual relationship within the context of marriage wrong? Now, that's a pretty peculiar question, isn't it? Look at verse 1 in chapter 7. Paul says, now the matters that you wrote about. Okay, so now Paul's been instructing up until this point. Now he's saying, okay, now to those questions that you had. Let's address those. And he reiterates their statement back to them. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's a statement that the Corinthian church is making, but it's it's in the form of a statement rather than a question. But they're saying, isn't that right? Isn't it better for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Now, you have to understand, at that time when there was such great sexual immorality in Corinth, celibacy was viewed, in essence, as taking the higher ground. I mean, when the whole world was falling apart, to abstain from sex, even in marriage, they thought, well, maybe that is even more holy. And you go, that's absurd. Most of you know my wife, Amy, and I spent our time going back and forth between the states and Uganda uh, for the ministry that we serve at. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because in Uganda, there, there's, a, there's a huge issue in the area of Uganda in which we serve with alcohol and alcoholism. It's a huge problem. And you see the response in that community, particularly in the people who are trying to, to be Christ followers. They go, this is such a huge issue. Alcohol is such a huge issue. No alcohol under any reason. If we're going to be followers of Christ, we cannot partake in anything having to do with alcohol. Now, that's a whole nother sermon, okay? But when I experience that, it kind of lets me into the, the 
head of the Corinthians when they're going, there's so much immorality here. Maybe it would be best if we didn't even have sexual relationships or as scripture, some versions would say, to touch a woman, even if we're married. You know, this was a time where asceticism uh, was a reality. Asceticism is the idea of abstaining from worldly pleasures to pursue spiritual goals. And, and so you th- when you think of asceticism, think of monks who pull themselves out of society and they, they isolate themselves so they don't experience the pleasures of the world, the influence of the world, because they want to be focused on God. So there's this ascetic influence as well in Corinth. And so, again, they're, they're just kind of trying to put pieces together. And they go, well, maybe it's better if we just get out of this whole thing. There was actually a, a group of people uh, led by a gentleman named Simeon Stylite. And his followers were called the Stylites. They were pole dwellers. Simeon Stylite literally for 50 years... No, excuse me, for 37 years, sat on top of a pole that at one time was nine feet high. It ended up being 50 feet high. His life was spent sitting on top of a pole so that he didn't have to interact with the world. People really did this, and a whole group of followers became pole dwellers. But it's this ascetic attitude, and, and I think this is probably what the Corinthians were struggling with. They're going, maybe we just need to pull out Altogether, And Paul's response is that it's not wrong to abstain sexually in your marriage relationship, but, and that's a, that's a big next question. Look at verse 2 through the beginning of verse 5. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his wife, or over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. Do not deprive one another. And we're going to stop right there. Paul gives a pretty practical answer to this question. He says, if you abstain from sexual relationships with your wife. And and he says, and and I'll concede that. I'll concede that it's okay. I don't recommend it. It's not a command, but okay. But I want to give you a couple conditions. See, abstaining isn't morally wrong. It isn't evil. It isn't sin. So Paul, the way he addresses this is he says, let me, let me give you both some theological and practical insight. And before I get to the practical of abstaining, I want to go back to the theological. He says this, he says, each should have sexual relations only with his own wife or own husband. That's the first thing that he says in his notes. Each should have Uh, Sexual relations only with his own wife. No sex outside of marriage. He says then in these verses that, that this is our duty sexually. Like, have you ever thought that if you're married, have you ever thought about your intimate relationship with your wife or your husband is your duty? Because it's not about your needs. It's about their needs. And it's about meeting their needs. In fact, the duty is so high that Paul says your body doesn't even belong to yourself. 
Quit thinking about yourself. It's about her or it's about him. Theologically, marriage uh, is the place for a sexual relationship to occur. There's a duty that we have, and it's a high duty. And he ends in verse 5 by saying, do not deprive one another. That same word deprive is used, uh, and we talked about it last week in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7, where Paul says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? It's this word cheated. That's what the word deprive means. Instead, you yourselves cheat and you do wrong. So what Paul is saying is, when we deprive one another, we are cheating our spouses. So the theological answer is, we have a responsibility sexually to our spouses. But practically speaking, in verses 5 and 6, Paul goes a little bit further. He says, don't deprive each other. Except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer Then come together again so that satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control I say this as a concession not as a command again. He says abstaining isn't sin It's not inherently evil But i'm not going to recommend it. I'll concede this point three conditions on when a husband and wife could or should should abstain. One, if it's a mutual decision. There's mutual consent, Paul says. Secondly, if it's for a spiritual focus, if if you're going to, it's kind of like fasting, to take time off of yourself and off of the world to focus on what God may do. So it has a spiritual focus. And then third, that you come back together again. That you come back to oneness. Because practically what Paul understood is for most people to abstain sexually in the context of marriage, put them at great risk and it leads to temptation and it will lead to immorality. So Paul was going, it's not wrong, it's not the best, but I'll concede to your question that there, there can be a time and place for that. But then look how Paul ends this little passage. He says, I wish that you were all as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. Paul says, I wish that you were single like I am. And we're going to talk about why he would say that in a minute. Because there's a reason why Paul says it's better to be single. In fact, six times in this chapter alone, Paul says it's better to be single than married. Many of us struggle with uh, what's called the grass is greener trap, right? Those being married wishing they were single, and those being single wishing they were married. But Paul's very clear. He says, you know, from his opinion, and it's, it's, it's just Paul's heart, because Paul's a single guy, he goes, it's better to be single than married. So two principles from these first seven verses. One is, there is nothing wrong, and there is everything right about sex and marriage. And then secondly, you may think you'll be more pure by abstaining, but the truth is you put yourself at risk for sin and immorality. That's what he's telling the Corinthian church. That's the first question. Look at verses 8 and 9 for the second question. Paul says, Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Paul's speaking to who? 
to the widowed, and to the unmarried. Now, the unmarried has several people, several groups that he could be talking about. He could be talking about widowers. He could be talking about those who are divorced, because they're not married. And he could talk about those who have never been married. And theologians differ on exactly who he's talking to here. I, I tend to think that he's talking to the the widows and widowers, because a little bit later he deals with those who are currently married, and then he also deals with those who are divorced, and he deals with those who have never been married, what scripture would say, the virgins. And so when I, when I take that into context, I tend to, I tend to lean and focus that he's, he's speaking to widows and, and widowers. So why would Paul say that it's good to remain unmarried? Well, look at verse 32 for a second. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. And then he says the same thing about the woman. See, Paul says that when you're married, your interests are divided. When you're single, you're focused. You can be very focused on ministry. So Paul kind of answers this question, should the formerly married be remarried? Paul says, well, there's a qualified yes. It's better to marry than to burn with desire, to burn with passion. But again, he says, man, if you could remain as I am, God can use you in a special way. Question three then, what are the, what are the alternatives for those who are married? Let's look at verses 10 through 16. Actually, we'll just look at 10 and 11 first. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. See, the Corinthian believers were wondering, again, is it more spiritual to be single than to be married because of all the immorality? Or maybe is it just better and so those who are married are going, so like, what do we do, Paul? Is it better for, should we just get divorced? And understand that at this time, divorce was so commonplace, you could be divorced for any reason whatsoever. You could be divorced uh, if you didn't look right. If a wife burnt a meal, that was grounds for divorce. If she spoke, that could be grounds for divorce. If she didn't look beautiful, or if she didn't care for guests who were visiting or prepare the right foods, divorce was rampant. And so they're going, is it just better to go ahead and, and get divorced? What are the alternatives for the marriage? Paul says there are two alternatives. One, spouses must not separate. He doesn't say it's a good idea not to separate. In verse 10, he says... It is good for them, or excuse me, he says a wife must not separate or divorce from her husband. Now, is that punishment? You know, is it, is it, no, you, uh, you can't divorce because I made the rules. And if I made the rules, you're going to follow them. I, I, I don't think that's God's heart. And we're going to see this with the second alternative. The, the first alternative is, Married spouses must not separate. Alternative number two is that if they do, they must remain unmarried or else be reconciled. Period. Paul is saying, 
if a couple divorces, you have two options. Remain unmarried or reconcile. End of story. And you read that and you go, well, well, that seems punitive. That seems like God's punishing me for getting divorced. Fine. You can never marry again. There you go. You want to get divorced? Never marry. I don't, I don't really think that's the issue of this at all. I think the reality is Paul's going, you know what? You can't remarry because your grounds for divorce are not biblical. You are still married. You can divorce legally, but in my eyes, you are married. So you're not free to go marry somebody else any more than I'm free to go marry somebody and be polygamous and have multiple wives. I was thinking of these two alternatives while we were singing our song today. (laughs) You know, I want your will, your way, always. And as I was singing that, I was going, do we? Really? Because this is God's way, his way, not our way, always. Let's continue on verse 12 through 14. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord... If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is a not believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And again, this is kind of an extension to that question of what about those of us who are married? What are alternatives? And and they're saying, you know, what if, what if we married as a believer, but then, or married as unbelievers, but then I became a believer? Okay? When my wife and I got married, neither of us knew Jesus. Now I've come to Christ. I know I'm not supposed to be what the Bible calls unequally yoked. I'm not supposed to be married to an unbeliever. So should I divorce? That's essentially what they're saying. And Paul says, no. Stay married. Stay married to that unbeliever. Because God will work through us, through you, and that unbeliever will be sanctified, will be set apart. The the influence for the kingdom will rub off on the unbeliever more than the other way around. And the children will understand and have a hope of the gospel. They'll see God at work in you, how you love your wife or how you love your husband. So Paul says, if you've come to Christ after you were married, that's not grounds to leave. And, and that may sound like a weird question to you, but you know, when I speak at the marriage conferences around the country, I'm asked that a lot. We got married and we weren't believers and now I'm a believer. And so should I leave? Because that, you know, Bible doesn't want me married to an unbeliever. No, you stay put. You stay put. Look at verses 15 and 16. But, and here's the first exception. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. And how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know whether you'll save your wife? So the first exception in marriage and divorce, Paul says, is if the unbelieving spouse chooses to leave, let them. Now, he doesn't just say, open the door and usher them out. I mean, he wants us to work towards reconciliation. That's his desire, right? He says, stay married, reconcile. But if the unbelieving spouse chooses to leave, you let them. 
because you don't know, wife or husband, if your influence is going to have an effect on them. You don't know that. So don't feel like, don't feel like you've got a point to prove. You're called to be faithful. But if they leave, you are no longer held accountable. You are no longer required or bound to that covenant. So that's, that's one exception that scripture gives us regarding marriage. The Bible presents another exception, and we're not going to go into it today too much, but in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells the followers that, that you are free to divorce and remarry if your spouse commits adultery. That's the other exception. So those are the, the two exceptions. You know, when Paul says in here, don't remarry or don't get divorced, but if you do, stay single or reconcile with these two exceptions. If an unbelieving spouse leaves, let them. And in Matthew 5 and 19, if they commit adultery, it can be justified. Now we have to understand about God's heart for divorce. Malachi 2.16. Malachi 2.16 says God hates divorce. It doesn't say he hates those who divorce. He says he hates divorce. Why? I think it's because Scripture paints a picture of marriage. Marriage, and this is a real important thing to note. Marriage was created that the world might see and understand Jesus. The the world might understand the gospel. Marriage is not simply an illustration of the gospel. Marriage was created that the world would know who God is and understand him. So when God created the institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, he was going, the way that people are going to understand my covenant, my commitment to them, is this covenant between a man and a wife. They'll they'll get that covenant-keeping aspect of God. The way they're going to understand the oneness of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit operating as one, is when a man and a wife come together and experience oneness. The way they're going to understand sacrificial love is in this marriage context, they're going to have to sacrifice and give their life away to be able to to make this relationship work. And they're going to get a picture of what I did on the cross. See, connecting marriage to the gospel wasn't an afterthought to God. It's the reason that he created the institution of marriage. God hates divorce because it prevents our marriages and our families from reflecting who God is for a world that desperately needs to know him. And I think God also hates to see his children hurt and the pain and the suffering and the struggle. Well, related to that, question number four, should salvation change our marital status? In verses 17 through 23, We won't go through this, but the question that's raised, if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, should you remain in the marriage? You know, maybe you were divorced in the past. I mean, the first question is what we just talked about, but the next question is, what if you were divorced in the past, and now you've gone on and remarried, and you're going, you know what, there wasn't grounds for the divorce, this is not good, this does not honor God. Should I divorce my second spouse and go back to my first and seek to reconcile? 
Paul says in this passage, no. He says, don't try to undo the past. Repent and move on. What matters is serving the Lord right now, right where you are. Married, single, slave, or free. Okay? And again, I run into this all the time. Well, question number five, what about those who have never remarried or never married? Should they remain unmarried? 25 through 28 says, now about the virgins. These are those who have never been married. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy? Because of this present crisis, I think that it's good for man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. If you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. So he's saying again, it's this common theme. If you're married, stay married. If you're not married, don't get married. It's all fine. But it's not sin if you do get married, right? It's just this theme that Paul continues to carry. And he says the reason is because... You're going to face a lot of trials and persecutions in the future. And single life just keeps it a lot more simple. You know, this pagan community of Corinth, uh, there's a lot of persecution. When, when you stop worshiping at the temple of Aphrodite and start worshiping the living God, that's not good for the economy. And so there's going to be persecution. Paul says, it's coming. Just stay as you are. But if you want to get married, fine. Just be aware that there are trials coming. But I love what he says in verses 29 through 31. And I think this is one of the real important things for us to take out of here today, regardless of where we are in our marriages. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about, or excuse me, I got to back up a little bit. Verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed with them. For this world in its present form is passing away. It's kind of an uplifting passage, isn't it? But you know, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, guys, live with an eternal perspective. Whether you're married, whether you're single. Live with an eye towards eternity. Everything here is passing away. It's all rubbish. Live with an eye towards eternity. He then goes on in the next few verses. I, just, I read a little bit earlier, beginning in verse 32. And he says, what are the advantages of being single? Well, you can be focused. You're focused in your service to the Lord. Married people are divided. They have divided interests and concerns. Let's go to verse 36 real quick. What about a person? Must a person marry the one to whom they're engaged? This is a great question. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind is under no compulsion, but who has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does the right thing, but he who does not marry does better. Paul's saying, it's good to marry if he wants. In Paul's eyes, it's always better not to marry. But I think the important thing for us to note is that engagement is not marriage. 
It's always easier to call off an engagement than a marriage. But again, this theme that continues throughout this passage, Paul's going, marriage is fine. Singleness is fine. I think singleness has a lot of advantages in terms of service to the kingdom. The last question that he addresses begins in verse 39. And this is, should the widow remarry? And all the widows said, amen. Yeah, Uh, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. So in Paul's mind, yeah, it's fine for a widow to remarry. That's one of the questions he'd ask. He said, just make sure it's to a believer. That's his requirement. So lots of different questions that Paul addressed. I think there's one last question that might be the most important question, though, for us to deal with today. Because, you know, undoubtedly, there are those of us in this room, when we look at our marriages, we, we see the pain, we see the destruction, we see bad choices that we've made and the harm that's been caused, and, and we beat ourselves up, and we are hopeless, and we feel, we feel like we've blown it. We feel like we've made a mess of our lives and of our children's lives and our family. But I think there's a biblical truth that's just as important as the biblical truth of marriage, and that's the truth of grace. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about marriage, and he was very straightforward and very direct, but he also had a lot to say about grace. Listen to what he said to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning, this is from John 8, he came into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. What do you say? They were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger began to write in the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. We're promised in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, guys, the the grace of God doesn't mean that He's going to take away the consequences of bad decisions doesn't mean that he's going to snap his fingers and unmake the past or take away all the pain. But it does mean that he will forgive us completely if we will bring that to the cross and seek forgiveness. He'll begin to work in your life in a profound way to transform you into his image and to bring glory to himself through you. It's never too late to go to the foot of the cross with our relationships. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, this uh, passage, as we have flown through it, um, has so much to say about marriage. And Lord, we, uh, 
we come before you thanking you for how you use marriage to transform us. I thank you that you take it seriously. I thank you that you care about it because you care about people who need to know you. And I thank you how you use our marriages to do that. And Lord, for those in here today who are struggling with guilt and pain and and who feel like failures, Lord, would you remind them that not only are you the God of marriage and the God of covenant, but you are the God of grace and the God of forgiveness and the God of second chances. And would you call them to yourselves? Lord, would they respond and just lay it all at the foot of the cross, claiming you, acknowledging mistakes, but trusting you to care for them, to love them, to restore what the locusts have stolen. And I pray that they would experience life that can only be found in you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.